The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. China's President Xi Jinping secured a third term for himself at the recently concluded Party Congress and packed the government with his loyalists. Dan Rosen of the Rhodium Group tells us what happened and what it means for the world economy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'll be hosting this episode, and I'm chatting with Dan Rosen, now a partner at the Rhodium Group. He's a former White House policy advisor and generally considered a top China policy wonk, if I may. And we're going to be chatting about what just happened at China's unusually dramatic party congress, which concluded last weekend. Uh, Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, Pete, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Um, Before we get started, uh, just so you don't have to waste your time repeating yourself, I'm just going to lay out some of the basics for our listeners and then we'll get into it. First thing, I explain what these congresses are. So there, there are two types of entities that are involved in the governance of the People's Republic of China. The first is the government institutions, the bureaucracies, the regulatory institutions. Um, the second is the Chinese Communist Party structure that stands behind all of this. And in a single party state, this, this com- the party structure is more important than the government. Um, and it's become even more so under President Xi Jinping. These party congresses are held every five years, and they're major events that ultimately dictate how the government is run and who runs it. And this one was a bit of a humdinger. They've often been kind of sleepy affairs as far as foreigners are concerned. But this this one was quite exciting. We had a scene in which the former president, Hu Jintao, was appeared to be escorted out of the event um, without any explanation as cameras rolled. Anyways, without getting too further into that, Dan, this was presented as a major test of Xi Jinping's ability to consolidate his power and further redefine his role upward. In your view, how did he do? How do you, how do you score his progress on that front? Well, I think if there was any debate about uh, whether he was this concentrated, centralized, uh, executive-style leader, in contrast to the old, uh, uh, the post-Mao Chinese approach of a committee structure to avoid, you know, the 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 risk that uh, that too much power could be in one person's hands. If there was any debate about that, that debate is now, you know, over and set aside. Um, All the um, all the indications of what the most sort of concentrated outcome would be are what eventuated or what we saw uh, in terms of the structure of the new standing committee uh, of the Politburo, in terms of uh, all the choreography, all those sorts of things. And then the little uh, hiccup where um, uh, former President General Secretary who uh, left the building even all sort of um, presented this picture of a um uh of a uh, uh you know clear concentration of power in in Xi Jinping uh, for political in in political terms anyway so a lot of people there's a debate over what this means i mean so she kind of came when he first came into power was seen as this kind of no name guy the the tool of a faction that was worried about eroding credibility of the chinese communist party among the new generations of chinese people um, the this sort of drift into corruption and to capitalism, um, and that that he was just this kind of like guy that got shoveled into position, um, not a particularly charismatic guy, and that therefore he had to do all this tough spade work to kind of consolidate his authority. And so there's been that you know people have been making kind of excuses saying, well, you know, he hasn't done reform, he hasn't been doing these things um, because he's insecure, and before he gets around to do all these wonderful things we expect him to do, he's going to have to protect his back. Now, we've had 10 years of Xi, now we're about to have another five. And people are saying, well, now, you know, with this dramatic 
absolutely stuffing the cabinet, the standing committee with his supporters, you know, this kind of extraordinary sidelining of people who are just not really opponents, but just kind of critics or more pro-market people that he is now free to do these things that people want him to do. For example, relax about the COVID zero policy, um, you know, where he's trying to kind of basically protect a population 1.4 billion from ever catching COVID-19, which is ambitious to put it mildly, and has had these huge economic impact from this crackdown on real estate. I mean, depending on how you view this crackdown is a good thing or a bad thing, but, you know, is he going to relax the pressure on property developers that has kind of put this major contributor to economic growth sliding sideways and downwards? Other people think, well, now he's going to—he's—he's he's powerful enough. He's going to go after Taiwan and start World War Three. <laughs> yeah. Where do you stand on this? So I've um, long thought that um, that line of analysis was, as the Chinese say, uh, drawing a snake and adding feet to it. Which is to say that um, uh, close on ten years ago, it was already uh, abundantly clear that Xi Jinping was not the sort of empty vessel um, or. Um, uh, or uh, a sort of uh, you know thin, uh, thinly uh, armored vehicle that was going to need to spend a lot of time shoring up its uh, its defenses and strength. Um, from pretty early on in his initial term, um, after his 2012-2013 um, investment uh, of the leadership authority, he took charge of all the small leading groups. Took charge of the uh, discipline process started cracking down on any possible future opponents in a way that you know left me with no doubt that this was somebody who knew how to use the reins of power had a clear plan of intention and then of course at rhodium you know we we really only follow the economic side with sort of a professional grade intensity although we spend a lot of time with um with our colleagues from the domains of um, politics and security, et cetera, to make sure we're not missing things. But in the economic lane, I mean, what was most striking to me was how um, uh, comprehensive and audacious the 2013 uh, economic reform program he put down on the table was the so-called 60 decisions, not so-called, the called 60 decisions. And, um, uh, you know, it was unambiguous. Uh, in its intention to really put a new stamp on the way the economy functioned, its relationship to the state, its relationship to the party. And it was actually a, a bit more uh, modern and um, uh, market oriented than many people expected at the time. So, you know, that speaks to independent thought, uh, ability to, you know, embrace a program that is not conventional by uh, modern Chinese People's Republic of China standards, frankly. and. That, of course, now we look back and we see that he was not able to implement that agenda effectively. It created too much instability, and he sort of veered off in other directions since then, which we can talk about um, if you want. But the main takeaway from that was that this was a kind of transformative uh, leader, not somebody in the tradition of just sort of, um, uh, you know, being a steward of the party's interests during his tenure and then passing it on to the next guy. This is someone who had ideas about really reshaping the system fundamentally. Yeah, well, we had the language about, you know, putting the market in charge of pricing. And I think I think at that point, and, and you had the appointment of people like Liu He, um, Guo Shiqing, well, the elevation at least of these people, a lot of these English speaking people who, you know, Yi Gang, the head of the, the, the governor of the central bank is, you know, uh, 
Western educated, a lot of these, these so-called highway, the sea turtles, these people that had experience in overseas markets were kind of at least ap appeared to be elevated into positions of power. And certainly, I think from the economic reform perspective, you can at least rate them on the on the their push to deleverage the economy to get um, you know some of the to eradicate some of the the deep systemic financial risk, right? But um, yeah, on balance, you kind of rate. I mean, and you've written that that, and you just said that he's he's more of a, a failure at economic reform than than somebody who is a resistant to it or like a a Maoist who's trying to recollectivize agriculture or whatever. But he's tried to tried to do something and failed at it. Can you just go into a bit more detail there? Yeah. Well, I mean, from certainly from 2013 to 2016, maybe 17, you could say it was a more complicated story with him trying to find a way to have it both both ways, if you will, both um, um, have a greater party discipline over all things, greater state uh, and party uh, optionality, if you will, um, to pull on whatever levers they wanted to for political and geopolitical reasons, while at the same time preserving uh, the economic potential of the country. Um, after, you know, uh, attempting to implement that in 10 or 12 different major areas uh, for those five years, each time seeing that it was going to be much, much more difficult and destabilizing than they had, uh, you know, seemed to have expected. Um, they've fallen back away from taking those big steps forward. For example, center local fiscal reform um, uh, was started and, and simply not implemented. Um, likewise, Renminbi internationalization, uh, uh, reducing the role of the property sector, all these kinds of things. And so, you know, today as he uh, begins his third uh, five-year uh, cycle um, term, uh, he's got all the same economic problems that existed in 2013 and then some um, because time has passed, the size of debts has built up. And now rather than it being a few fringe economists suggesting that if this reform work doesn't get done, potential growth is going to fall from five or six percent to two or three percent. That is essentially where we are today. I mean, they'd be really lucky to say that it was as high as three percent in 2022. Probably much less than I mean, that. It's, 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 because just it just pause it for a second. So so you mentioned yep. the property crackdown and that or you mentioned property and that's well, usually one say, area yeah, attempt, where he, he has to de-risk attempting to de-risk de the property sector right it was clear to anybody with eyes that the um, extent of um, debt building up in the property sector a property sector that had become as much as 25 percent of all gross domestic product activity was not sustainable was imprudent and um, could not be expected to be this the engine of growth going forward the way it had been in the past even if a soft landing could be engineered for the uh, liabilities of the present, it was never going to play the same role in the future as it had from, say, 2011 to 2021. And so, yeah, I would characterize it that way rather than a crackdown on property because, you know, it's hard to say they're cracking down on something that they themselves were choosing to use <laughs> for all those years. It's oh, yeah, not like, sorry. I mean, yeah. I just, I mean, what what, the, what is happening with property is just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you were around 2014, 2015, where they took their first swing, you know, and then and and everything seemed to go wrong in the economy. You know, when they're they're cranking up mortgage requirements, everything you had this correction in prices and everything went south and they were forced to kind of reverse themselves. And at that point, I think 
reasonably, a lot of the developers concluded that like, hey, you know, we're we're too big to fail now, right? Like, like right. all we need to do is lever up as much as humanly possible. Like the the more dangerous we are, you know, the less the more the less they're likely to go after us. But I mean, they are going after them now. I mean, the and it does seem like at least in that area, he's willing to take a huge hit to economic growth. It's kind of a train wreck. I mean, on that area, do you yeah. see him easing up or do you see him holding kind of a hard line? Well, look, I think this is the this is this is um, probably the 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 most immediate um, uh, you know theater for uh, ex ex exploring this question of whether the most authoritarian leader can have everything his way in his economy, right? Um, you have all this concentration of political power, as we were saying. There's no question that it, nothing that happens will or doesn't happen will be a result of the leader not having enough power. <laughs> you can't have more relative power than this guy now has. And yet an infinite amount of power, can, can it resolve the kind of financial uh, risk that is laden in the property sector? I would, our, my colleagues and I would argue that no, it cannot. It's an uh, ext extraordinary tool, this, this political power that uh, she and the party now have, but it simply is not the tool that can address a distributed um, over, you know, extended liability among hundreds of millions of people um, across the entirety of urban middle-class China who have overinvested in a single asset in a single emerging market economy called China and an asset called property. And on the assumption that this was never going to slow down, that the kind of extraordinary growth uh, in, uh, in in the property sector was going to continue on for many years to come, and you know the uh, I think um, the the sort of uh, modern economic perspective on that was that supply and demand will ultimately um, impose themselves on that and put it to a test. And if there's not demand for additional property assets, um, or if uh, you know the uh, the ability to um, constantly refinance themselves and roll over debt um, comes, you know, will come to an end at some point, at which time there will be a terrible reckoning. And it'll be revealed that um, even the most powerful government in the world and party behind it <clears throat> don't have the credibility to convince everyone that they can pay off all these liabilities without anybody um, experiencing a loss. And that was our thesis put out in as early as 2018. It was clear to us um, that this was near the end. In fact, in I think September 2018, we said there's at most three more years before the financial um, uh, engineering around the property sector starts to come apart at the seams. And right on schedule, I think that was the month that uh, uh, Evergrande um, uh, started to uh, default on bonds and whatnot. No, yeah, we've we've followed your work quite closely on the bit. L let me ask you, since, since you mentioned the word credibility, we stand back a little bit. So we had a lot of people that that um, we spoke about, Liu He and these people um, that were kind of the, the face of credible market reform in China. And they are one of the things that happened during the Congress was um, these guys look like they're leaving the Central Committee which indicates that they're, you know, not only that their party roles, but their their government roles are going to be deprecated. If not, you know, they're they're just kind of on their way out. It does not look like there's a crew of of equally trusted English speaking technocrats coming in to replace them. And um, we had this big market sell off in the wake 
of uh, yeah. you know the the thing. Um, but, but I mean, this is portfolio assets. These are people moving in and out of bonds and A shares. You guys have done a ton of work on direct investment, and that's where the story is a little bit harder to see. I can't tell anecdotally. You know, if you asked Apple what they're doing and you asked Starbucks what they're doing, you hear very different stories. You know, and the official data can be somewhat muddied by round trip investment by, you know, Chinese companies dressing up as foreigners going in. Can you just talk about like, how do you read foreign interest in parking money directly into China in, in terms of controlled managed assets um, yeah. and operating companies? Yeah, and uh, in, exactly as you note, Pete, the, the foreign direct investment, which entails multinationals and other entities building factories and things like that, those sorts of investment flows, you know, can't turn around on a dime. So, you know, nothing about what I have to say about those trends right now is reflective of the Congress itself, of course, right? I mean, it, you know, yeah, um, it, it's uh, it's reflective of overall trends you know, over recent years, I would say, really. But um, a couple things, a couple points on this. Um, there are conflicting Chinese data sources. Uh, on what the today's pattern in foreign direct investment flows are. Um, Ministry of Commerce numbers uh, tell a story that they're they're uh, at, at a record high level. Um, uh, uh, People's Bank numbers, uh, which strip out some of the noise, um, uh, suggest that the picture's not quite that rosy. But I think Regardless of which of those series, and even if you look at the more um, at the more rosy uh, Mofcom numbers, what strikes me is that when you look at the inflow of foreign direct investment divided by the size of China's economy, FDI has been going down for well over a decade. The sort of foreign direct investment intensity of the economy, if you will, the amount of FDI relative to how big the economy is, has been changing in a you know subsiding direction for a very long time. Um, which is to say, I mean, my interpretation of that is that Beijing has not allowed foreign interest in being present in the economy to grow in tandem with the size of the underlying economy. As an economy gets bigger, you should expect more foreign investment, just like you expect more domestic investment from, from Chinese companies. If there's more com consumer demand there, then you know firms from around the world are going to want to be part of that too. And so it's not enough that <clears throat> this year's um, inward uh, FDI, let's say, is 150 billion or whatever it is relative to 140 billion last year. Um, the question is, what's the footprint of foreign investment look like relative to how big uh, the underlying Chinese economy is. And I think partly that can be um, ascribed to uh, a reluctance of uh, Beijing to uh, finish opening the door to foreign uh, direct investment inflows, especially in sectors uh, involving uh, data, of course, and services um, beyond um, the traditional areas. But partly too, I mean, and most recently, I think we're starting to detect um, a um, an exasperation um, by many firms with a slow pace of reform and um, uh, and uh, modernization, I dare say, um, in the Chinese economy, and a concern that ultimately that will result in uh, dramatically slowing GDP growth rates. That the current you know very very um, uh, tepid rate of growth might not just be a one year COVID shock. 
but might be the new normal, especially if uh, Xi Jinping and the new leadership don't choose to speak to it um, with more um, sense of urgency about the economic work that needs to be done to um, uh, to reach potential growth uh, in the years ahead. So again, that's where we are. And I think that'll be the consequence if we don't see a more, um, I think, mindful economic package uh, in terms of dealing with uh, what currently ails the economy. One final question. So, I mean, one of the interesting things about Xi has been his his talk, the Chinese people need better lives, you know, and his his desire to, to deprecate the importance of GDP. Um, which is, you know, just one indicator and it's it's it has its its problems. And obviously China has produced a very enormous amount of GDP figures that have gone places that have not been that productive. Mm-hmm. If we talk about like a couple issues here, there's you, you mentioned the fish, fiscal issue. It's it's notable that through all of this pandemic, China has still failed to kind of put through a massive package to upgrade its 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 welfare benefit system, its healthcare system. The the amount of handouts has been quite parsimonious. There's been, but he's he's talked about you know common prosperity, you know something that panicked a bunch of investors like oh my god here comes socialism and nobody's gonna buy Prada anymore, but like <laughs> on balance like if they have like high quality low growth, is that that bad a thing? I mean if the GDP that used to go into building empty apartment buildings and roads to nowhere evaporates, at what point can China yeah. get by you know this massive economy at a at a lower rate? I mean, uh, you you know noted that you'd have to you'd have to see a shift in investment flows away from overcapacity things that were low return, like more apartment blocks that nobody really wants at this point, toward things that people do need, like better healthcare services and things like that, right? So that is how does that happen? You need really wholesale financial system reform, public expenditures reform, in order to make that structural adjustment in the in the, uh, the 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 you know the basic architecture of the economy happen right and those are things that were anticipated by Xi and his team in 2013 and then they just found that uh, implementing that was not going to be um, not going to be um, comfortable enough for them to to stay the course and so they fell away from it. Um, among the extraordinary challenges necessary to keep 1.4 billion people happy at a lower rate of growth is, at its heart, redistribution. <laughs> Taking money from people who are very wealthy and through the you know intermediation of the state, uh, redistributing it to people who don't have as much wealth, don't have as much economic opportunity. There are in China, let's remember, about 900 million people, as uh, analysts like Scott Roselle um, very compellingly tell us, right, who are waiting their turn, who are only making a few thousand dollars a year, perhaps, and are on the fringes of cities or in rural China, what have you, um, but um, are just not even close to living modern lives. They're not going to wait forever. Can we redistribute? Uh, trillions of dollars of wealth and earnings away from urban Chinese to those 900 million Chinese to give them their turn? We could. It would require for the very, very first move would have to be something like property taxes to be paid by people who have wealth. And even that little first step is something which uh, the Xi, uh, uh, the Xi era has seen attempted several times only to be um, 
deferred and pushed back further on the calendar because the social consequences of that for urban Chinese was too uh, too alarming and too concerning, and it led to um, it led to anxiety about stability in the cities. Right. So this is so yes, there's a way forward, and yes, uh, socialism has a role to play in all of our societies. There's a little bit too too much concentration of wealth. Uh, worldwide, I, I would agree, but the hard work of policymaking to redesign uh, the way that government and party function um, so that you can um, uh, enduringly implement those changes, that you know is something which today's Beijing has just not yet demonstrated the ability to um, to achieve. Um, so I think the good news is they've already in the, they've already demonstrated that they understand that that needs to happen. No matter what the growth rate is, we need a better apparatus of the state to handle things like redistribution in a more well-off society. That's the good news. The bad news is we've seen them try to do it and fall back from that challenge several times already um, because it's so uh, there's no easy way to do it. Everybody who's every rich country in the world today has had to go through some crises um, on the road from lower income uh, levels to higher income levels. I don't think China will be an exception. Uh, but the leadership is still looking for some magic way that will allow them to get there without um, the same kinds of uh, economic disruptions that, uh, unfortunately, everybody else on the planet has had to go through on route. Um, yeah, I agree with you, Pete, that um, uh, that the new crop of um, uh, officials don't have the same track record of um, uh, trying to implement market stuff. But on the other hand, the old crop, um, Leo He is the most commonly referenced name. They didn't succeed in implementing all that stuff the past decade either. So I'm not sure what the ideal technocrat is who can get the job done. Um, and I'm I am you know concerned as well um, that, um, uh, that we haven't seen. Uh, strike the, yep. Is that do you think that? People were deluded by these technocrats. I mean, you say that you saw, you know, what Xi Jinping was going to be nearly a decade ago, that the signs were all there. And yet, Liu Ho come in and make a speech about how after the technology crackdown and everything that, you know, everything's fine. We're still committed to market reform and markets pop up like 7% on the day. You have all these people who are desperately kind of looking for signs that we're going to go yeah. back to the to the old China. Please, can we get back to the pragmatic if if the, the the illusions have been removed and we can now see exactly what we're dealing with on balance, isn't that better for investors than than kind of being coddled in, in false hopes um, that that behind she is some sort of pro Western um, market market reform mechanism that's still churning away? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I so I have a, a somewhat um, idiosyncratic way of of looking at all that and arguing through it. Um, I don't think that markets are inherently Western. I think there's a, a, a thousand year Chinese tradition of understanding the role of markets in a society as well and finding prices and even the role of a strong central state in setting monetary policy for uh, for a kingdom, uh, you know, has an extraordinary history uh, in China. Um, so uh, I don't think these things are inherently Western. Uh, of course, Anglo-American capitalism is definitely its own flavor, but there's lots of other flavors of market economics that one finds in the West, that one finds in Korea and Japan. And it really wasn't 
arm twisting from Washington or anywhere else that had inclined China after 1979 to reorient itself uh, in a way that economic outcomes relied less on political commissars deciding what supply and demand should be, but instead letting private actors choose what crops are worth growing, um, uh, bear risk, um, uh, figure out what the demand and supply curves should look like in society in most areas, right? Now, there's, there, there was always, of course, an intention to maintain influence over the commanding heights of the economy um, to uh, for all sorts of reasons, right? But that was, you know, really, it was not a Western um, demand of China that it, uh, it find its way to more uh, market-oriented approach to figuring out what people should do when they get out of bed in the morning. After all, they had had a good 30-year uh, warm-up for that 1979 uh, decision where they had immiserated themselves to, on the eve of uh, the 1979 third plenum, China was per capita one quarter of the per capita income of Nicaragua in that year. That's how incredibly impoverished they had made themselves. And all leaders at the time, including Xi Jinping's father, understood what how how mistaken that had been, how erroneous that had been. So we, you know, uh, market uh, marketization and market reform uh, was not at all just a Western uh, construct. Um, it has a Chinese tradition as well, and it will be a crucial part of the Chinese political economy in the future. The question is how many more years we're going to spend trying to find some magic uh, way to avoid all the disruptions and challenges that come along with um, finishing the job of marketization. And yeah, um, I think you know we haven't seen our last market route um, on the journey to um, a more a more stable economic future. Let me just leave it there. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're seeing one now. Well, look, uh, Dan, that was that was great. Um, thanks so much for talking to us. Um, I think that's all the time we have, so I'll wind us up. Uh, I'd like at this point to thank our listeners for tuning in and shout out to our producers, Thomas Shum and Katrina Hamlin. Uh, please do subscribe to the Exchange podcast and its sister podcast, The Views Room, on Megaphone, Spotify, or whatever podcast products you listen to. Catch up with our latest views and much more on BreakingViews.com and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews. Thanks again, and take care.